Hello, my name is Chris Jones. I'm a poet and I teach creative writing at Sheffield Hallam University. Welcome to the Two Way Poetry Podcast, a fortnightly series of programmes where I speak to poets about their own creative inspirations and practice. In each episode, I invite a writer to talk about a poem that has influenced his, her, their own writing. We discuss the work, and in return, my guest reads a poem they have written as a response, however overtly or indirectly connected to this original piece. In this show, I talk to the poet Pete Green about how Louis Manisse's book-length poem, Autumn Journal, played a part in the writing of their own piece, Sheffield Almanac. Uh, I'm, I'm here today uh, with Pete Green, and uh, we're going to talk about two poems. The first one is Louis Benice's book-length poem, Autumn Journal. And we're also going to discuss... In the light of reading and talking about Autumn General, in the light of that, we're going to reflect on Pete's own poem, Sheffield Almanac. Pete, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks for coming up from your from your house. Just down the road, anyway. <laughs> yeah, all the way up up to uh, all the way up to Crooks. Quite an arduous journey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Pete, the first question I've got for you is. When did you first come across Autumn Journal? Um, I think the first poetry I read by MacNeese would have been his his shorter lyric poetry, which I would have come across as a young person probably in the late 80s, early 90s, when I first started to read poetry. And I first came across Autumn Journal, strangely enough, um, through music, because um, the final chapter of Autumn Journal was recorded by a Bristol band called the Blue Aeroplanes who were active in the 80s and 90s and they'd set it to music. Did they really? Yeah. So. I saw the Blue Aeroplanes many, okay. many years ago, yeah. And unfortunately, they didn't play that. I saw them as well, I think, supporting REM at Birmingham NEC in 1990 or something, maybe it would have been, or 88. But yeah, no, they didn't They didn't play the... I don't think it was really meant to be played live. It was just as a kind of a spoken word piece. Above, over a, a musical backing and turned up on a B-side, I think. A B-side. So did you did you come to it and think, what is this? It's like a prayer anyway, isn't it, the final? I seem to remember the final chapter. Yeah, yeah. It's got a real, it's got, a, well, I mean, it's the, the thing he keeps coming back to in his sleep and he's going around everyone, um, almost everyone he's spoken to or addressed or, um, in the preceding chapters of the poem. And it's almost like making your peace with everyone. Um, and yeah, it's got a pleasing kind of lullaby quality about it in that regard. So when you read it at school, was it was it at school you read the McNeese or was it out of school's kind of it, it wasn't part, Yeah, it wasn't part of the curriculum. Um, I think the, the closest thing to contemporary literature that was on my A-level syllabus was Great Expectations. Um, so <laughs> right. it, it certainly wouldn't have been that. Um, no, I think it, it would have been the time that I just first started to read poetry more widely outside of school. So did you actually buy a copy of 
autumn journal eventually. Eventually, yeah. I mean, I had a... Um, there, there was only so much book buying you could do on five pounds a week pocket money at that <laughs> point. But um, I had a, a selected Magnese, which I don't th- maybe maybe had a an excerpt from Autumn Journaling. But then I, I managed to get a collected edition, um, which again I didn't buy. I think I just nicked it from the uh, library in our sixth form, <laughs> uh, which which is how it went. yeah it was kind of formed the basis of my. Uh, my bookshelf at those points. So yeah, that was how I had um that was how I came by the complete text of Autumn Journal. And this this edition which we've both got in front of us now, yeah, is a Faber um edition from I mean it looks like it, it it's got that kind of feel, that particular range that Faber published. Um and and I think is still publishing now, which is which kind of in the in the last 10, 15 years or so, which approximates, I think, to the look and feel of a lot of these 20th century texts as they would first have been published. Yes. I think this one's from 2012. Yes. I'm going to bring in another name now, which is W.H. Auden. Uh, he was associated with McNeese. He was friends with McNeese. They travelled together. They went to Iceland together and wrote a book about Iceland. And Auden's still, I would, would regard as being the more famous of the two poets, probably the more well-known did you see McNeese in relation to Auden, or was it just something, or was it just a standalone kind of experience for you? I I never got that much into Auden. I suppose I was aware that he and McNeese were contemporaries, um, but I guess at the time when I started reading, McNeese was relatively out of favour critically. Uh, I think his reputation and his visibility declined in in that part of the late twentieth century, for whatever reason, you know the. Yeah, vicissitudes of critical taste or whatever. There seems to be much more interest in McNeese again recently. Like you say, McNeese kind of fell out of favour or wasn't as was not regarded as so highly. But I, I would, you know, personally, I think he's a, a very fine poet who we should all read. And I'm so pleased you've chosen Autumn Journal to talk about because it, yeah. it is one of my kind of favourite poems. I think really, what a poem. Um, so McNeese wrote Autumn Journal in the, the autumn going into the winter of 1938. And he's at that point in his life, he's, um, a little jaded. He's, um, had a, a marriage breakup and a few professional ups and downs, I guess, in his academic career. He's not hugely established as a poet at that point. I guess he's not been, he is, he is being published, but. You know, he's not he's not up there with the household names, I guess. And so Autumn Journal is a ref- long, reflective poem which takes all those things into account. And and I th- one of the things I love about it and which people love about it generally, I think, are its roaming perspective. So McNeese is constantly looking outside his window at, at the world that's about to go to war. And then he's looking back in inside himself. Um, he's ruminating on these lost loves he's he, he's immersed in self-examination yeah um, and i love that about it yeah he's the bit you're going to read from he reflects on his marriage and he's just about uh while he's writing autumn journal i believe he's also just there's an affair that's just finishing with uh with a painter called nancy coldstream yeah so um 
at that point, he's still quite a young person, I guess. I mean, he was very young when he got married originally, before his, his wife ran off with one of his friends. And then, yeah, this this other relationship he's been through has also failed. And I think, yeah, for, for, for a young person at that point, albeit one who's very confident in its voice, um, he's, yeah, romantically, he's had a lot of, lot of ups and downs. He has. There's self-doubt there, isn't there, I suppose? But there's also a kind of robust robustness to the to the voice as well. The voice contains kind of many emotional levels or pitches, I think, really. Yeah, and I think if you try and get under Magnesi's skin, you know, he's he's obviously got the self confidence that an Oxbridge education gets you. Yeah. Um and, you know, if you read his unfinished autobiography, The Strings Are False, there's there's not much self-question, <laughs> self-doubt in that. He's very sure of himself. I mean, he is at the heart of the establishment. I mean, one of his best friends is is Anthony Blunt, who, you know, ends up working for the Queen and ends up being unmasked as a Russian spy eventually. But he's also a bit of an outsider as well, I think, really, which sort of makes him... He, he kind of he sees things from the outside. I mean, he's Irish. He's from an Irish background, in which he talks about in Autumn Journal. I think also the role of the poet is, is, is the idea that, in a way, that you are an outsider too. Yeah, it's easy to see Magnus when you read his work rather than being at the centre of attention, as you imagine someone like Ted Hughes might have been in his university days. Um, yeah. It's easy to imagine Magnus uh, Rather than that, on the margins of the room, I think. Um, perhaps with one or two close friends rather than being the centre of attention. We need to hear uh, a chapter from Autumn Journal. That'd be really helpful for for our listeners to kind of get a sense of of uh, his own voice and perhaps also where you're coming from in through Shefford Almanac. Cool. Okay, so this is chapter eight of Autumn Journal. Sunshine's easy. Sunshine's gay on bug house, warehouse, brewery, market, on the chocolate factory and the BSA, on the Greek town hall and Josiah Mason, on the Mitchells and Butler's Tudor pubs, on the white police and the one-way traffic and glances off the chromium hubs and the metal studs in the sleek macadam. Eight years back, about this time, I came to live in this hazy city, to work in a building caked with grime, teaching the classics to Midland students. Virgil, Livy, the usual round, principal parts and the lost digamma, and to hear the prison-like lecture room resound to Homer in a Dudley accent. But life was comfortable, Life was fine, with two in a bed and patchwork cushions and checks and tassels on the washing line, a gramophone, a cat and the smell of jasmine. The steaks were tender, the films were fun, the walls were striped like a Russian ballet. There were lots of things undone, but nobody cared for the days were early. Nobody niggled. Nobody cared. The soul was deaf to the mounting debit. The soul was unprepared. But the firelight danced on the plywood ceiling. We drove round Shropshire in a bijou car. Budley, Clebury Mortimer, 
Ludlow. And the map of England was a toy bazaar, and the telephone wires were idle music. And sun shone easy, sun shone hard, on quickly dropping pear tree blossom, and pigeons courting in the cobbled yard with flashing necks and notes of thunder. We slept in linen, we cooked with wine, we paid in cash and took no notice of how the train ran down the line into the sun against the signal. We lived in Birmingham through the slump, line your boots with a piece of paper, sunlight dancing on the rubbish dump, on the queues of men and hungry chimneys. And the next election came, Labour defeats in Erdington and Aston. And life went on, for us went on the same. Who were we to count the losses? Some went back to work, and the void took on shape, while others climbing the uphill nights of the unemployed woke in the morning to factory hooters. Little on the plate and nothing in the post. Queue in the rain, or try the public library where the eye may coast columns of print for a hopeful harbour. But roads ran easy, roads ran gay, clear of the city, and we together could put on tweeds for a getaway, south or west to Clee or the Cotswolds, forty to the gallon, into the green fields in the past of English history. Flies in the bonnet and dust on the screen, and no look back to the burning city. That was then, and now is now, here again on a passing visit, passing through, but how memory blocks the passage. Just as in 1931, sun shines easy, but I no longer dock it a place in the sun. No wife, no ivory tower. No funk hole. The night grows purple. The crisis hangs over the roof like a Persian army, and all of Xenophon's parasangs would take us only an inch from danger. Blackout practice and ARP. Newsboys driving a roaring business. The flapping paper snatched to see if anything has or has not happened. And I go to the Birmingham Hippodrome, packed to the roof and primed for laughter, and beautifully at home with the ukulele and the comic chestnuts. As pals we meet, as pals we part. En bon point and in new tiara. The comedian spilling the apple cart of double entendres and doggerel verses. And the next day begins again with alarm and anxious listening to bulletins from distant measured voices arguing for peace while the zero hour approaches while the eagles gather and the petrol and oil and grease have all been applied and the vultures back the eagles but once again the crisis is put off and things look better and we feel negotiation is not in vain save my skin and damn my conscience. And negotiation wins, if you can call it winning. And here we are, just as before, safe in our skins. 
Glory to God for Munich. And stocks go up and wrecks are solved and politicians' reputations go up like Jack on the beanstalk. Only the checks go down and without fighting. Thank you very much for that. Uh, you read that really well. I mean, I think I find it quite hard to read because of the, one of the things that interests me about Autumn Journal is the form. And I think we should talk about the, the idea of how it's actually presented on the page as kind of a, a way of glossing or kind of backing your own, uh, your own reading of it. I mean, how do you, how would you describe the form of the poem? When you, when you're looking at the poem on the page, um, it's, it's continuous. There are no stanza breaks. There are alternate lines that are indented and there's a rhyme scheme as well. So, um, Magnus uses a scheme. It, well, it varies from chapter to chapter through the autumn journal, but most, for the most part, every alternate line is rhyming. And I think this form lends itself really well to the roaming kind of focus of the, the piece generally. It's, um, uh, which I found as well when I borrowed that form for um, Sheffield Almanac, I found that the allowing the lines to lengthen and shorten as we do can give scope to draw the reader's attention to particular things. So there are um, there are spaces, uh, there are places in Autumn Journal and in Sheffield Almanac where the lines become shorter, and um, the reader feels certainly in Autumn Journal's case, hopefully in Sheffield Almanac's case, that something. Of, um, is about to happen of particular importance or significance. And then the rhyme scheme, I think, helps to hold the whole thing together without it. That I, I, I certainly would have found anyway during a, the writing of Sheffield Almanac that without the rhyme scheme, I would have, my focus would have drifted. Mm, I think focus is a good word because I think it actually is flexible enough for you to put everything in it in a way or for, for my niece to put everything in it but also there's like moments where there's moments of focus of clarity in terms of he uses the rhymes to, to kind of just to pin to pin the lines down to give it a, to a form or structure a kind of shape so he's working both kind of freely and formally at the same time does that make sense it does and it works really well for Autumn Journal because he, he, he's no stranger to what we call going off on one. <laughs> um, he, he goes into these um, reveries, doesn't he, where he's uh, not, not, not just looking back, not just at retrospection, but sometimes he's um, in his own life, but, but sometimes he's, uh, he's looking back at the ancient Greeks and how they, what, how, how they did things and what they would have made of it all. Yeah. Which is, which is interesting. Yeah. What do you think of um, the line about hearing homer in a dudley accent <laughs> i think it it does make me laugh having lived in the black country myself um i can yeah it's it's a funny line at the same time um we would be well advised not to not to laugh at it too much and not to be too uh not to be too lucky downy about it i'm not sure my accent's not the most literary chris you retain a midlands accent <laughs> yeah. yourself don't you so neither yeah. of us can uh, Neither of us can get too high horsey about that. Yeah, there's a de there is a degree of snobbery, I would say, in Autumn Journal. Definitely, um, you know, and it's warts and all, isn't it? Really, it is. I think there's a in chapter three, Macnice, um looks looks at that in great length. So he's 
talking about people coming back from summer holidays and going back to their films and football pools and so on. And and yeah, he's uh, he does have a he does have a kind of a snobby um, perspective in, and tone in some places, but he's he then goes into this great um, section, one of my favourite sections of the poem actually, of self examination, where he's really he's he's checking his own privilege, as we would say in, yeah. in, in these days. And now the tempter whispers. This is this is how it goes in the poem. Now the tempter whispers, but you also have the slave owner's mind, would like to sleep on a mattress of easy profits, and so on. What you want is not a world of the free in function, but a niche at the top, the skimmings of the cream. And then McNeese says, and I answer that that is largely so, for habit makes me think victory for one implies another's defeat. So it's it does have that snobby yeah. outlook, doesn't he? But... You know, credit to him there as well because he's um, he's interrogating it. Yeah, I think also the, the filters are kind of down in a way, and so he'll put everything in in the poem, won't he? So in a way, he's not just thinking about high culture; he's thinking about. So there's the the bit in, the, in this bit where he talks about the music hall, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And that's on the same level as as the Greeks. I, you know, I would argue it's the same kind of. He's not distinguishing between the two, is he? He's not looking down at. The idea of going to the music hall, I, I'd say, or the cinema, or you know, he's very alive to all forms of culture, isn't he? I suppose even while he's not necessarily participating in it himself, he's he knows what's going on there, and I think he makes it his business to know what's going on there. When we reach the final chapter, where he's there's this this sleep quietly, yeah, you know, everyone. He says, "Sleep quietly, Marx and Freud, the figureheads of our transition, Cagney." Lombard, Bing, and Garbo sleep in your world of celluloid, which is wonderful because he's looking around the scene at, at, at high and low culture yeah. at the same time. There, does he ha- does he have an argument in? Do you think there are all oh, there are arguments in Autumn Journal? He's again. I think he he's wrestling with his own position. If we go back to chapter three, he he's talking about elitism. He's talking. You know, first of all, it, there's this incredible section where he anticipates the um, sort of discourse that that we've used quite recently, where we talk about the one percent. Yeah, you know, and, and he's talking about elitism, and he and he says that ninety nine in the hundred who never attend the banquet must wash the grease of ages off the knives, which is a fabulous um, couple of lines. You know, and then when he's going through this self examination and, and this checking his privilege, he, and he's talking about. Um, he, he's talking about preserving the values dear to the elite. And he says, it's so hard to imagine a world where the many would have their chance without a fall in the stand, standard of intellectual living and nothing left that the highbrow cared about. Mm. And then, he, then he says, which fears must be suppressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, he's very honest about the fact that he's in he's in conflict with himself there. Yeah, I suppose there's there's various conflicts in the poem that he's kind of articulating. Like you say, it's it's outward looking and inward looking. And I suppose the outward looking parts of it focus on to an extent Spain, which he visits in the poem. In fact, he visits twice. Yeah, and then the Munich Agreement, which is mentioned in the poem, and the the, the kind of the fall towards war really mm-hmm. that's the other kind of main i'd say the main kind of backbone or sort of skeleton that 
um, the poem is hung on. So, yeah, in the chapter I just read from, um, obviously that closes out with a look outwards at, uh, at Munich um, and the temporary hope that uh, Chamberlain has done enough to, to fend off war there. But it's always hanging over. Um, it's always hanging over you in the poem. You can't, you're never far away from it. I think there are these passages of great hedonism mm. in the poem as well, um, of, uh, of drinking and roistering with, with the ghosts of the dead and, and, and the spectre of war never far away and looking through the window. There is a section also, I can't quite remember where, but there's a, there's a part where Louis Magnese is looking out of his window and seeing trees being cut down on Primrose. That's Hill right. That's because, at the start. Yeah. yeah and because they're, they're putting guns up there. Yeah. Uh, Anti-aircraft guns. Yeah. Um, in anticipation of the Blitz. Um, what, more than a year later. So, yeah, you're never far away from it. There's this, there's this great sense of foreboding, which, which runs right through the text. Oh, yeah. I mean, the ARP, he mentions ARP in this, in this particular section of the poem. I mean, there's lines like, I mean, I'm just going to, read something myself so they're going driving in their tweeds through the Cotswolds into the green fields in the past of English history flies in the bonnet and dust on the screen and no look back to the burning city and you can't you know you can't read that line now without thinking of the the blitz the the, the bombings the, the the fact that war came to to Britain, war came to England through the air raids. So that kind of line, although it seems quite poetical in a way, or kind of high, kind of not pompous, but kind of you know, kind of grandiose, is actually kind of almost a premonition of what's to come. Yeah, I think he's he's made an incredible choice of word there, hasn't he, to refer to the burning city. I at the, at the first reading. It's not a Birmingham city. It's not a burning city. He's looking back at, at, at Birmingham with 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 smoke yeah. pouring from the chimneys, isn't he? Of, yeah. of the um, the breweries and the factories and so on. But as you say, yeah, anticipating the the, the real burning of cities, which was which was to come. I mean, very briefly, I think if you look to the poem, it's it's this, and I'd say this about your own poem as well, which we'll come on to very soon. It's this idea of of balancing the past. Uh, writing in the present tense and also having the future in mind, having those three together and how he balances those, those three kind of separate entities. Yeah. And when Magnese comes onto the future, he shows himself, despite what we've um, considered to be perhaps his jadedness at this point in his life, he shows himself to still, to retain a lot of idealism, I think as well. So, when we go back to that final chapter, yeah, um, there's a. Just bear with me a second. There's, I think, there's this wonderful vision of um, a, a, another society, I guess, where where people are the ninety nine percent you referred to earlier, washing the greasy knives and so on, where where they're actually um, actually get the um, get the space and the opportunity to pursue things that are more fulfilling, as Magnese puts it, where life is a choice of instruments and none is debarred his natural music, which I think is great. Yeah. yeah. And there's a, so I suppose that, that he, there's that degree of kind of idealism, you could say, because he's actually 
visited Barcelona and people are basically starving in the kind of in the streets you know they are they're just about to be overrun by Franco yeah um, I think no one comes back from Spain at that point in history without it affecting their their perspective quite profoundly no? so you so he wants the best but he kind of knows the worst is going to happen as well yeah and and that's what makes autumn journal such an interesting text because it's 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 on this tightrope at this point in Magnus's life where he does still retain some of that idealism and before yeah. you know before it can be overtaken i guess by the lessons of life maybe and it's notable that the poem he wrote a few years later autumn sequel in a similar form yeah. um, never really reach the parts that uh, Autumn Journal reaches. Well, that's, I mean, that's a good segue to, to your poem, I think, in a, in a kind of roundabout way, because uh, your, your publisher, Lombard Presser, Brian Lewis, has just published a second edition to Sheffield Almanac. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's the same text, but you write an afterword in it, and you say that you, you could have easily kind of extemporized or written about the, the first text and written lots of footnotes to explain some of yeah. the kind of the uh, transient or the kind of temporary references, but you don't. Yeah. So, you know, did, was there, was there much pressure on you to kind of, to revisit the text? Only, only pressure that I put on myself. I think certainly, um, Brian was, wasn't, wasn't urging me to do it in any way. I, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm torn both ways because I, yeah, I want the, I, I conceived of Sheffield Almanac as, as a snapshot and I, you know, I didn't want to be going back doing running repairs on it. Yeah. And, you know, but at the same time I spent ages writing it and it's, and the thought that someone would pick it up now and, and some of it would be lost on them is, yeah, that's possibly troubling, but. I've resisted the temptation to to annotate. I think if you build if you build the poem well enough, then it then it stands. I think. Yeah. You, I mean, Nice probably didn't worry about the fact that people might not uh, who you know v v you know making various references in the poem. He probably just thought that was good enough then, and it's good enough now. So I think you know you 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 made the right decision there, basically. I'm glad you think so. McNeese <laughs> does similar in a, in, a, in a foreword to Autumn Journal as well, and almost as if he's embarrassed by some of the points that he's made or some of the perspectives he's he's taken. Um, but looking at the text now in 2023, we look at the foreword and we don't know what it is he's apologising yeah, for. So exactly, the longevity of the the text has won out in McNeese's case. Yeah. But you say you you spend a lot long time writing it, but it, again, it's time specific period, isn't it? That you're that you're writing about in yeah. Sheffield Almanac. Yeah, so um, I moved to Sheffield in two thousand and four. I started to write the poem a little over ten years later, I think, and the the process of actually writing and editing the text probably. Took 18 months, two years, maybe. Right. But I think, you know, what, I've, what I think about it is, I think I was writing it in my head before that for for any number of years in between coming to Sheffield and starting to write poetry because I didn't write any poetry really before, before 2014. Obviously. Wow. So I was, so, I mean, I think I look at the text now and I think, 
yeah, I was that that image was taking root inside me from something I saw from a bus window in 2008 or something, even if I yeah. didn't write it down for another, you know, five or seven or eight years. But you're also a musician as well. I mean, I should, we should point out your, your biography a wee bit and that you've, you've been in the band and you've, you've written songs. So yeah. you, it wasn't, you know, you've, you've got a kind of a background in, in writing and, and creating. Yeah. Um, Has that informed your poetry, do you think? It has. I think, I think because, because people sometimes see song lyrics written down in, this, in a similar way to poetry, people can sometimes assume, I'm not saying you're doing this, Chris, but people sometimes assume that they're, that they're very similar crafts, songwriting and, and poetry. And it took me a long time, I think, to realise that they're, they're very different crafts, actually. When I started to, when I started to write songs as, as a young person, I, I I was I was trying to write poems really. Um, I was trying to put too much in there, and actually, song lyrics need to. You need to step back. You know, you need to see them as lyrics. You need to hear them with the music. Um, when you're writing a lyric, you only you only really need to. It, the work that it needs to do is of sense, and it needs to hang on the melody. It doesn't need to concern itself with sound as well as sense. Whereas when you're writing poetry. Mm. You combine the two. Yeah, I'm, when you're writing a lyric, you've got instruments to and melody to to, um, yeah, to take care of the I sound think that's, for you. I think that's a really good way of explaining it. I think, yeah, for for uh, the layman such as I am, you know, I think. Um, Interestingly, on that subject, Matt himself once said that if he were forced to choose between sound and sense when deciding on a word or a phrase, he would have a slight preference for sound. Okay. Yeah. Which I think explains his his lyricism as well. Yeah, no, tremendous completely, lyric. Poet. Completely, yeah. So um, I think we should hear a section from Sheffield Almanac. Uh, and so, so do you want to contextualise it in any way before you yeah. start? Yeah, okay. So we, we haven't yet mentioned the, um, the structure of Sheffield Almanac. So... Autumn Journal has 24 sections, um, which which cover the autumn and the winter. Sheffield Almanac has four. They are admittedly a bit longer, but each one of those four corresponds with the season of the year. So I'm going to read from the, the first section of Sheffield Almanac, which is the autumn. Uh, and at this point, the poem's looking back at, looking back at my past, I guess, in that way that, Many of us often do who live in university cities or work at universities when we see the students coming back to the city um, for, the new, for the new academic year. At this point in the text, I'm looking back at my undergraduate days in Birmingham, where, of course, Matt Neese himself was, uh, was teaching. And we were timeless as the empty afternoons when we would settle in for desultory shifts at the Fellow and Firkin unprepared to take one more step toward the millennium's unmapped plains, without a pint of cloudy ale and a doorstep sandwich loaded with fat chips. Some seminar on Wolf and Joyce just finished. We might stay put. We might loose happenstance with suburban wanderlust undiminished. Let the current bus us to Cotteridge or West Bromwich. 
Let the bondage of deadlines unravel free in time and space, at least within the bounds of an off-peak pass from West Midlands travel. Suede supplanting Blur. Blair succeeding Smith. Tumbleweed days. None of us paused to cherish care freedom since we never knew, or just suppressed the knowledge, that it could perish while the ink dried on our dissertations. Weeks were some abundant currency one borrows at deceptive interest rates, pays back at breakneck terms in repossessed tomorrows. And when the time came to consolidate, Sheffield was our redemption, our second bite at adulthood's sour cherry. And when it's done, when the tallies are reckoned, and we feel the slowing of the birthdays zipping past like the exit signs for Junction 33, will we have come this far only for the settled life itself to seal our dysfunction, rather than those years of frenzied chasing? We thought those threadbare rented rooms, curtained with frost and damp, would be the time the low tide turned amid the hurt and searching. What if they prove instead the high water mark? These kids have 4G, streaming media, Wi-Fi, colossal debt, jobs preempted by machines. We had payphones, typewriters, a dust-strewn, scratchy hi-fi, student grants and jobs that worked us like machines. And all of us, austerity, austerity and ISIS, seas that go on rising through each summit, refugees and leaders somehow baffled by a crisis every bugger else could spot a mile off. Just as, this time last year, We watched the occupation of central office while they price-tagged hope and knowledge, surprised by the moral pluck and spunk of a generation dismissed as dismal materialist go-getters. Equally wrong-footed, the coppers made a kettle, flung kids from wheelchair seats, performed the miracle of raising a new cohort to its feet and on its metal to pick up where we left the poll tax off. This time, beyond London's Hall of Mirrors, every region saw insurgent youth again. And round Cole's Corner marched a stoked-up legion of sophomores and school kids side by side. We know any booming cogwheels will surely crunch and seize up should we live to see recovery. We know the rest. Clegg and the Tories put the fees up. But now we know the nature of autumn's bonus hope. Despite the cost of learning going treble, the spirit that radiates as halls of residence revive is the spirit not of the entrepreneur, but the rebel. Let's go again. Psychology, landscape architecture, biotechnology, East Asian studies. An occupied theatre hosts a free lecture. From barricades to trending topics, I followed the movement online while tending the baby. One feed for the jaded, one feed for the pure. While we're expending reproductive energies, a revolution spent. And look now, winter extends a brittle hand, calling last orders on the year.
but I'll be the obstinate last drinker, stalling for time while autumn's tables are wiped down. I'll be the flaneur in the park, passing dead leaves and regrets from hand to hand while squirrels hunker below the slow massing of polar air at the season's borders. I'll see you on the other side. Perhaps they're right. Perhaps the interweaving of our threads into our children will be our making after all. And soon we'll be retrieving optimism from these lengthened nights as our adopted city draws new breath this morning. Like this oblique first light along the streets of Crooks with those unloaded bags of socks and books adorning freshman lawns. Let them be young and daft. Let fortune attend their drunken stumbling into roads. Let the kids be all right. The shine will dull on this clutch of conkers, their shrunken, drying bulk brittle like ageing bone, as blown and brushed from grates go the last of the old year's embers. And the season's first curls of chimney smoke stroke the underside of the first chilly sky while September's evenings graduate from the grey of slate to the black of carbon. Let the nights not draw in quite yet, nor the kids grow sober. Autumn's advance and the slants of the earth shade on these vestiges of warmth into October. Shade on, prolong the welcome of this shifted city. Let its embrace still widen. Now's no moment for this prudent stock-taking, bean-counting, the accountant's weary eye. Let this place take in the refugee, the student, the one and all who reinvent, renew, regenerate. Underfoot, the leaves accrue like debts for tuition, degenerate to mulch. This is the dying season. Yet these guests now unpacking lives make scant imposition, but loan this city life, new blood, new reason. Thank you very much. So I can see the kind of the similarity between your poem and Nice on the page. I can just see the design similar. Yeah. How much did you listen to Nice and want to? Let Nice into your poem, and how much did you kind of want to kind of almost shut him up, you know? <laughs> yeah, so um, I guess I recognised early on after taking the initial inspiration for the form from Autumn Journal that if I stuck too closely, um, then I would struggle to find room to manoeuvre, I guess, for, my, for myself. So... It was actually the second chapter of um, Sheffield Almanac, which I which I started writing first, and at that point I was quite conscious um, that I was I was borrowing, I guess, formally at least, uh, and tonally in some some places. Once that was established, and I realised this was the right form for this poem, then I was quite conscious about taking a step back from Autumn Journal, um, and I actually went quite a few years without reading it. looking back at it uh, in preparation for this podcast some of the similarities or or commonalities I guess have um, have really surprised me that that there are things that join the two poems which I was definitely not even conscious of 
I suppose one of the things I was going to ask you about is the idea of the of the narrator. And whenever I look at a poem, I think about we confuse often the idea of the the I, the person who's speaking with the with the poet, and I always say we have to be careful about that because it's actually a, a construct. It's it's an, you know there is a narrator who is not fictional, but certainly someone who's you know who's who's been created for the purposes of the mm-hmm. of the poem. But I would, my would argue that your this poem is quite autobiographical. Yeah, I mean there are different there are different levels at which that separation between poet and narrator can operate, aren't there? So there are poems where the poet and I've done this um, in, creates a character to narrate for them, um, or or narrates in the second person to a protagonist, or there are first person poems, and this is one where if there is a separation between the poet and the narrator, it's much more subtle than that. Yeah. I mean, you talk about a, a, you know feeding the baby at one point, yeah, and that's used to talk about both the you know the, the feeding of. Um, I mean, the quote is, I think it's a lovely line actually. Uh, yeah, I follow the movement online while tending the baby. One feed for the jaded, one feed for the pure. Yeah, so at that point, um, and the, the poem refers to it in, in considerable considerable. Depth. The um, the students were protesting against the um, the troubling of tuition fees uh, and surprised a lot of people. I think really by by the, the sudden militancy of the young people again at that point. Yeah, um, which which we which which hadn't been a thing for a while. At that point in my life, um, my my first firstborn was uh, still tiny, and so I was reading online about students occupying buildings on campus and so on. Um, while, yeah, while actually, uh, actually holding a bottle up to yeah to, to feed my baby, yeah, that that's 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 done so well. I think that kind of again reflecting on or looking back to the McNeese paradigm of actually kind of conflating or put, bringing together the, the the personal and the and the public, and I think you do that so well on this poem, really, Thank as you. a kind of as an ongoing, an ongoing argument, was it straightforward for you to find a, a thread or a way through each poem? Because you actually, there's a lot of information, isn't there, in each of the, in each of the poems that you have to kind of stitch together. There's yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a huge, um, uh, there's there's a huge sub sort of sub, well, not subtext. I don't know, counter narrative or whatever with me because. In Autumn Journal, and I don't know to what extent I realised this while I was writing it or realised it afterwards. Overall, I'm, I'm I'm looking around at this the predicament of the city of Sheffield when the steel industry uh, and much of the economic activity that gave rise to the city in the first place has has dwindled and diminished. And so, at that point, the city could ask itself, "Well, why are we still here?" Yeah. At the same time as all that's going, and, and perhaps that's the political aspect of it, or the social. Um, but at the same time, I'm I'm looking at this relationship that I'm in at this point after uh, two children have been born, and like a lot of people in that situation, in relationships, I'm I'm asking, why are we still here as well? Yeah, um, and 
Yeah, so it's there's a, there's an ambiguity about the purpose of of both things. Mm. Do you write? Did you write the poem in a way to relearn the city, or because it because it seems like almost encyclopedic in its kind of reach, and it's a way of actually not only exploring but le- like kind of understanding the city, I guess. What I think what I've done is is record the parts of the city that were familiar to me. At that point, I would be wary of claiming to have an encyclopedic experience of the city because, as p- chapter two of the Almanac makes clear, there is this other Sheffield that yeah. m- many of us who live in the kind of privileged west of the city uh, see very little of. But yeah, I suppose you, you mentioned the rivers as a sort of, as a language of the sea, which is an interest to me, as someone who's written about the River Dom. Yeah. But I, so I, I find the so the rivers are a symbol of continuity, I guess, in the river as well. At the same time as they're flowing, um, they're actually the one feature of the landscape with the hills, I guess. But the hills are built on they're, they're the one feature of the landscape that remains constant through the industrial and the post-industrial. And when it comes to reflecting on language. One of the things that interested me while I was sitting on buses in Sheffield was um, was to hear people still still saying the and that, which which is which is wonderful, um, which made made me reflect a lot as well on the way that language can be a an emblem of continuity. Yeah, are you an outsider in this poem, or are you are you being absorbed into the the body politic or the status quo of, of Sheffield? That's a really good question. I think when you come to a new city, as I did in 2004, you're super keen to fit in. You want to be, you know, you want, you want to belong. You want to feel accepted by the, by the natives of that city. I certainly had a lot of anxiety to, to not seem like the outsider. I think being a northerner in a Midland or a Southern city, you feel, I certainly felt like I could never be anything other than an outsider in Birmingham. Yeah. Um, I could, sometimes I found people, I'd have to repeat myself three times when I was drinking a beer. Yeah. Um, which I never had in Sheffield. And I did feel Im- immediately much more at home in Sheffield when I started to visit the city in 1999. Right. And eventually moved here five years later. But yeah, there's always that feeling that how, how much do you belong? Um, I mean, I guess in Sheffield, people are used to outsiders arriving from all over the place now. Yeah, I think you're right. Much more so, perhaps, than, than 20 years ago. And as as I mentioned in Sheffield Almanac, that case has been well made now that um, uh, after after the steel industry, after the, the loss of heavy manufacturing or or the loss of mass employment in, yeah. in, in those industries, the... Arrival of, of students of, and the expansion of higher education in Sheffield has been a, a great economic lifeline for the city. And to what extent people appreciate that around the city, I'm not sure. I think people do appreciate it for the most part. You, I think you get less friction between students and locals in Sheffield than probably other cities. Yeah. I couldn't, <laughs> I, yeah. Could, I couldn't quantify that with any data, no, but that's no, the impression. I'm not, I yeah, no, I'd, I'd yes but again it's probably where 
where they live as well. I think you know that's part of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I mean, it's interesting. You do say you do talk about Tinsley as a sort of in, in relation to the air quality. I think you're kind of making that link. Yeah. So, um, which is on Tinsley's towards the M1, isn't it? North Sheffield. Yeah. So it's it's right by Meadowhall, isn't it? And it's right almost under the M1, isn't it? And, yeah. And the air quality over there has been found to be lethal. I visited a former primary school there recently. It was well, the empty husk of a of a building a yeah. few years ago, which used to be a primary school there, and it couldn't it couldn't be used as a school because the air quality was so terrible. Right. Okay. Um, and yet they still, you know, they, they still built a new IKEA over that way, didn't they? And yeah. Which, despite all the warnings that this would exacerbate the air quality even even more. Yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned, these are all things that you mentioned in the poem. Yeah. They're all there, aren't they? So yeah. Everything's in there, isn't it? Yeah. In a way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, bubbling away and... Yeah. Yeah, so when I came to Sheffield, we, the city was having a conversation about the kind of city it wanted to be. There was a debate going on um, online in the pages of the Sheffield Telegraph about whether we wanted to have more big shops and be more like Leeds and Manchester. Yeah. Um, and it surprised me, I guess, that the, the, there weren't more people asking, well, you know, what's the other side of that? What's the price we pay for that? We lose some distinctiveness. We certainly lose some air quality yeah. in the case of IKEA. And yeah, you had that, um, you had that Sheffield councillor, didn't you, who said, um, who said, well, we don't want to, Selfridges or whatever it was in in Sheffield, we don't want to be like Leeds and have those kinds yeah. of shops because Sheffield women don't want posh frocks. <laughs> Do you remember that? that was, <laughs> so that was that was this infamous utterance by a councillor at that point, and it, it it was it was interesting. I mean, it was misguided. I know several Sheffield women who do want posh frocks. Yeah. Um, it was misguided, but there was at the same time that it was interesting that there was this recognition that Sheffield is a bit different. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, without going too much into it, it is very different from Leeds and Manchester, uh -huh. just in terms of the size of the city centre. But it's what you, it's how you connect the, the centre with the, the suburbs or with the, you know, the estates. And it's, yes. it's that which is kind of, I think Sheffield str struggles with, really. There is, isn't there? That really, um, sharp divide between East and West, as we've said. Yeah. Um, so that that's all really interesting, but I'm in Birmingham actually. You've got a similar um, conversation going on right now about the billions that have been invested in the centre to make Birmingham into a kind of shiny international destination for people who only see the airport and the city yeah. centre, contrasted with the neglect of the the outlying areas, mm. which in some places is enormous. Yeah. So that's not unique to Sheffield, but I think it's manifest in a particular way in Sheffield, yeah. Mm. So you talk about the idea from Blur, Sway to Blur. Yeah. Um, Bl uh, Smith, then Blair. Succeeding Smith. Succeeding yeah. Smith. I mean, yeah. that's, again, that wordplay, but there is the the, poli the politics of of the almanac. I mean, there is, it is left-leaning, obviously. Um, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> it's... Um, but how how do you how do you think it, it works as a political poem? Are, are you out there? Are you trying to change? No, it's minds not, or all? it's not a rhetorical 
poem. I don't think it's, I don't think certainly didn't set out to be a persuasive poem, really. I, I think in as much as it is a political poem, it is, it falls within the greater remit of being observational. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, maybe there's this assumption um, maybe you know right into this echo chamber of left-leaning <laughs> readers as well but actually you know that's Blair succeeding Smith is is a is a milestone I think which many people of our generation might remember I, I remember I remember getting getting home from a, a lecture in my my second year as an undergraduate and and switching on the switching yeah. on our old telly and and seeing the seeing the reports you know this being kind of pre-mass internet of course you know yeah. you'd find out on the telly felt like this huge milestone particularly after the loss of the 1992 election by labor and and yeah now we, we still have these conversations about oh what if you know what if yeah. john smith had, had, you know had, had survived to to lead the yeah party into the 97 election and so on so any but anyway to come back to the point i don't think Almanac is a is a rhetorical poem. I mean, I think it's making certain observations about the perceived value of human life um, versus economic development. You know, to come back to the the IKEA thing and the and the air quality thing. But beyond that, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think it is. I don't, I don't see it as being um, polemic in any way. Yeah. Well, there is a. Polemicism to it, though, isn't it? I mean, it is driven by a degree of anger. I suspect it's. I, th I think if there is, it's um, it's not because I set out to be like that. It's because I grew up in the nineteen eighties and, yeah. and the, the anger that I, that that, um, that resided in me since then has has never never really left and continues to inform everything I do. Probably, um, but I didn't I didn't set out to write a political poem, especially. Did you did you learn anything about Sheffield, or do you see it differently now from writing this poem? I, I as I say, I think I've I've learned to be careful about generalising, and and I've 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 not, you know, at the same time as we talk about Sheffield being this supremely welcoming place and and so on, you know, there's, I've that's been my experience. You know, from a privileged perspective, yeah. I've spoken to, um, I've spoken to students from from other backgrounds to my own who've experienced racism and and harassment and and yeah. uh, in various forms. So it's yeah, I've learned, I guess, not to not to kind of take my own perspective for granted in that. But the, but, the, but there is a pluralism in this poem, I think, which is kind of that kind of addresses that. I think. Everything's not. Everything is seen through the speaker, but they're not like a dominant kind of egotistical presence in the poem. Like, like for instance, a, a Larkin narrator might be uh -huh. telling us <laughs> how things are. You know. Yes. No. I couldn't. I couldn't be a Larkin type narrator. No. I think. I think that's true. I think. Um, well, I hope that's true of of or of Sheffield Almanac. I think having written it in the way I did as well by absorbing voices and 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 perspectives in the way that i did sitting on buses sitting in pubs listening just listening to people talk yeah um which i did for as i say a few years before i started writing it and i think it became it became a way into sheffield for me and there's a section where i'm talking about um 
where we're talking about redevelopment and the sorts of and the sort of city that we want. And there are two. I'll I'll just I'll just read yeah. from that section yeah. if I may, sir. Yeah. Two old couples round a table in the fat cat balance, reminiscing about the pubs and the Sheffield lost to us now, with a sense that change has two sides to its cutting edge, that each lament for Castle Market's fall and annexation by the artists needs rebutting, with memories of the bird shit dropping from its ceiling. Yeah. And, and and there are there are those two there are those two takes on Sheffield, aren't there? There there yeah. is that um there is that take that places like Park Hill um are absolutely wonderful and should be cherished and valued, yeah. you know, by those of us who never lived in them. Uh, yeah, you know, pre redevelopment and so on. Um and and yeah, I mean it's interesting that Castle Market was uh, uh be, became a kind of a pop up uh, gallery of some sort at, yeah. at one point as well, you know. So, yeah, you know, there's this there's this creative reuse uh, of spaces. There's this appreciation of brutalism and so on, um, you know, by people people that would never have never have lived in council flats or never have shopped in, in Castle Market. So it's uh, yeah, those perspectives interesting, and it's it's important to keep both of those in mind. That's something I learned, I'd say, while I was writing it. Mm. Final question. Do you have another long Sheffield poem in you? Ooh. I, I, I can't see it at the moment. Um, one, of the thing, one of the things I mentioned in the afterword to the second edition of the Almanac is, yeah, perhaps the landscape of Sheffield has become a little less distinctive since I wrote the the since I wrote the poem, um, you know, in that trees have been cut down, which is a whole other conversation, of course, you know, and, and, I, and I have written about that elsewhere. And yeah, we've lost, you know, we've lost some of the shops and the bars that we held dear, which were, which we like to think made Sheffield distinctive. But the points or the observations that I've made about the, about the people of Sheffield and about the social psychology of the city I don't think it changed at all. So the changes have been superficial, really, for the most part in the years since I've written the poem. Maybe in another 15 or 20 years, <laughs> I, could, I, I could find enough that's changed um, to, to revisit the poem uh, or, or, or to, to have a go at an autumn sequel kind of thing. <laughs> um, but at the moment, I can't, I can't envisage that, and it's not, it's not on my agenda. I guess having written... The sequence pulp as well, which yeah. um, dealt with the uh, the library closures and the tree fellings that took place largely after the time scale of of, of Sheffield Almanac. I've, I've moved on. Thank you very much, Pete, for coming around this afternoon. Talk to, to me about about my niece's poem, which uh, I'd say to anyone lis listening, uh, go out and 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 buy it or borrow borrow it from your library. And also t t talking about addressing, discussing your own work, um, Chef and Almanac. I'd say buy it, definitely buy it, rather than borrow it from the library. <laughs> you need to go back to it, don't you? So, so yeah, you don't steal it from the library. Just, just buy it. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thanks. Pete Green is a musician and poet who grew up in Grimsby and has lived in Sheffield since 2004. They have published 
two pamphlets with Lombard Press, Sheffield Almanac, first edition 2017, second edition 2022, and also Hemisphere 2021. Pete's first full-length collection of poetry came out with Salt in 2022, entitled The Meanwhile Sites. To find out more about Pete's work and explore this and other podcasts in the series, go to the website twowaypoetry.podbean.com or my website chris-jones.org.uk You can also follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at CWJonesChris, or on Blue Sky, at CWJonesChris.bsky.social for more updates on future episodes. The tune to take us out was written by William Jones. <laughs>